Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, everybody, this is In Liberty and Health, episode number 85. I believe I got that right. And uh, I got two returning guests. Unfortunately, the third one would have been a first-time guest, but um, you know he had a little bit of an issue come up, so that's perfectly fine. I got Angela McArdle and Pat McFarland, both returning to the show to discuss politics. Uh, Angela, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me back on. Of course, Pat. Doing good, Kyle. Thanks. Of course. Well, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Um, as I said in the last show that, um, you know, this show's kind of dovetailing on, um, political strategy is becoming more and more important as the government gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We need to figure out how we're going to tackle this Leviathan or kind of have a strategy set up for combating the ever-growing ever and ever-expanding state. So um, I wanted to have two people on that were really good on this issue of the GOP paleo-libertarian route. And I think both you guys are really, really um, good on the issues that kind of come with that. And, um, you know, I didn't want to do a debate specifically because I didn't want to just sit here and talk past each other. I wanted it to be a little bit more of let's present the arguments and let people decide for themselves and not have a shouting match that ultimately gets us nowhere. So um, I guess real quick, Angela, give a introduction on your thoughts surrounding um, you know, political action and where you're at. And then Pat, you can kind of tail on that as you see fit. I think political action is really important right now because we live in an inherently political world and it's really difficult to escape it. Uh, you know, I think agorism is fantastic. Uh, principled non-voting anarchist, I totally support that. But for me, yeah, the reality is I'm concerned about situations like Waco and Ruby Ridge. Like I don't want to get Ruby Ridged. And so political action to me is a defensive maneuver. And that's why I engage in it. Sure. Yeah, and that's completely reasonable. And uh, I, I think I was going back and forth with some people on Twitter about agorism. And it, it's kind of like the idea that you're going to get everybody to drop out and no longer vote. Well, <laughs> it's can it work? Sure. But is it realistic and scalable? Personally, I don't think so. But uh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, Pat, go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I think in the past I've been more of a, a purity testing libertarian in the early days, like in 2017 and 18. And I've become a lot more pragmatic since then. Um, you know, during COVID, I, I started giving speeches locally. Uh, the first one was to like 300 people. And unfortunately, they never got that big. But I, I tried to appeal to my local Republicans and doing that kind of stuff. Uh, I always... I never really attended LP stuff. I've been friendly with the Mises caucus and I, I got no beef really. Um, but I always also recognized the fact that Ron Paul ran as a Republican and what he was able to do there. And that's how I came in actually was through his campaign, like so many other people. And so also like Dr. Paul, I tend to think that there is no central planning for Liberty that we all just need to do what we think is best to advance Liberty and I can't control what other people do. I can only control what I do. So I just try to speak the truth as I see it. And I, I know what my role is in this movement. And I, I actually, I don't really comment on strategy too much. I just focus on my own work. So, uh, but I have focused a lot on critiquing the populist right, uh, especially with their China policy. So that's my biggest takeaway. But I'm more of like a single issue uh, kind of um, you know, forming coalitions on single issues kind of guy. So that's just where I'm coming from. Of course. And that was kind of the, one of the main reasons why I started following you and um, had you on now twice. And I plan on having you again because you and I haven't done a show just by ourselves yet, but uh, we'll, we'll figure that out eventually. So um, I guess we should start by defining the paleo movement. Um, thank you, Angela, for uh, kind of being the brains behind this whole thing. I had, uh, we had kind of talked about doing this whole deal um, when I had her on initially back, I want to say it was episode 59 or 60. And um, right after we shut the, uh, you know, the meeting down, we kind of said, oh, well, we started talking a little bit about strategy. And uh, Angela really hasn't laid out, from what I understand publicly, her, um, her thoughts surrounding paleo-libertarianism. So um, I was really excited to do this kind of show to lay out the Libertarian Party critique of the paleo-libertarian route, and obviously, Pat, you can compliment that as well, because you've been very, very good on critiquing the populist right when it's necessary, and obviously praising them when it's not necessary. So kind of before we start defining the paleo movement, um, I want to talk a little bit about the Mises caucus strategy, because I think some people have a poor understanding of that. Um, my understanding is that the Mises caucus doesn't want to run against good Liberty Republicans. So let's say there were to be a libertarian down in Kentucky running against Rand Paul. Um, the LPMC may not necessarily endorse the person running against Rand Paul because it's like, okay, well, this guy's good on all the issues we want. So what are we gaining when it comes to running somebody against him? Now, if it maintains ballot access, it's a different story, but we're not going to purposely run someone against him as a spoiler or, you know, to try and get them elected versus somebody who's already good. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. And I would give the caveat that that's, there's not really a lot of Republicans that would fall under that category. Right. So for everybody listening, who's a diehard Libertarian Party fanatic, and they're like, we, you can't shut up. We're, we're talking about like three people in the country. You could relax, you know, relax a little bit. Right. So um, I guess we'll start off now um, defining the paleo movement. Um, my understanding of it is more so, you know, being a libertarian and then working with the Republican Party. So as it stands right now, it looks like Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump are going to be running for president in 2024. And um, 
people would basically run locally or work with their local GOP and support the candidates, you know, statewide and federally. Um, personally, I cannot get behind Donald Trump after, especially after 2020, but uh, you saw the spending, the foreign policy, and then this increasing hawkishness on China, which I believe is a pretty big issue. Um, I can't get behind Ron DeSantis either because his abysmal voting record when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, when it comes to foreign policy and being an absolute Zionist. Um, Pat, do you have anything to add there? No, no. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, Monica and Pete discussed this on their recent podcast, but she was saying that the IDF was actually called in to help with the condo collapse. And so you have IDF bomb squads being dispatched to Florida to help with this domestic catastrophe. Uh, so anyways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the look on Angela's face is pretty priceless for anybody. Just uh, threw just that in there. And then you were like, anyways, <laughs> bomb well, I mean, squad, we, you know. we can, we can, uh, we can expand upon that. I mean, DeSantis is on the record saying that Florida is going to be the most like Israel friendly state in the union. I mean, there's, there's a lot of red meat there and things to be. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we'll definitely kind of tag along that. Um, A a lot of the paleo people seem to really like Ron DeSantis and to his credit, he is playing the game the way that traditionally Republicans would. Um, He loves the people of Florida and he's not afraid to say that. But, you know, there's also a lot of baggage that comes with that. So are we willing to start violating property rights to punish the people that you don't like? Well, some people may say that that's it. Well, before we start diving down that, um, Angela, what is your definition of paleo-libertarianism? So I think the best working definition for us right now is trying to sneak libertarian policy in through the Republican Party. That's... That's the, you know, there's, there's all kinds of takes on whether or not you can implement the paleo strategy within the libertarian party or outside of political activism. But I feel like generally when people are talking about it, they're talking about all the stuff that Rothbard uh, and, and Lou Rockwell to a certain extent talked about in the 90s with respect to Pat Buchanan and trying to get a populist movement going and, and sneaking libertarianism in through that. There's even a little bit of David Duke sprinkled in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why it seems like a lot of libertarians agree at the nineties Rothbard. And I'll be completely honest. I'm pretty ignorant on a lot of libertarian literature. Um, It's just, you know, I I wish I had more time to sit down and read all of it. And perhaps that is something I should do. But um, Pat, when it comes to the paleo libertarian movement, do you see, you know, issues with trying to integrate libertarianism into the current populist right? Yeah, I mean, I, where do we start? I mean, basically, <laughs> I, I think that first off, what we're really kind of forgetting is that there are, because the pendulum has swung in the direction of the Republicans being more friendly on liberty at this point in time. And, and I think there's, I don't think there's much denying that, but let's not forget that the pendulum swings back in the other direction and that there's a lot of things that conservatives are really, really bad on. I mean, I, I was young during during the Bush years and all of the, the abuse of civil rights that happened then, the warmongering, those kind of things. But I mean, if you grew up in a small town like I did, um, you forget how insular and judgy that, that, that conservatives can be. I say that being a conservative myself. I mean, you know, there's the cliques, there's the pure, puerile, I mean, um, 
like the satanic panic when everyone saw demons under under rap music and and heavy metal. So, I mean, there's a lot of things like that that we could go into just culturally when the trending towards authoritarianism with culture and and talking about being disgusted with things and people. I think that conservatives have a tendency to have this contempt and disgust for things. Uh, but but as I see it with the the current uh, populist right, I mean, the biggest issue is fear of the other. And I think fear of the other is China right now. And I've talked a lot about a building foreign policy consensus where, uh, you know, the left over the last few years has really made half of the country hate Russia, thinking that Russia is going to has attempted regime change, that they're meddling in our elections and that they're conspiring, that they've bought Donald Trump and that he's a Russian agent. And then at the same time, you have a parallel narrative pushed by Donald Trump that China's the biggest enemy in the world. And the populists are just continuing that. And they're talking about, um, you know, just embracing all this rhetoric that really is the State Department line embraced by Joe Biden talking about how China is that, that the 21st century is going to be defined by strategic competition with China. And you see a lot of them, you know, talking isolationist policy or non-interventionist policy about Russia, which is very good and very needed. And the rhetoric is very good on that for the most part, but it's always, oh, well, we can't focus on Russia because we have to focus on China. And they, sure. they don't talk about all of, all of the really incredibly extremely aggressive China policy going on right now that I've detailed in our, our last interview, actually. Of course, okay. yeah. Let's, Go ahead, let's weave some of this together because you, yeah. you just like said a whole bunch of really important stuff. <laughs> Sorry. And I think that it's fantastic. I think it's related to some other stuff. And this, what we're looking at is really a byproduct of, it's the end product of conservatism conservatism being the right-wing approach to socialism. I really think it is uh, because- And that's HAPA. Yeah, Sorry, Andrew, in, yeah. Imperialism, wars for empire, that is not behavior, but somehow it gets snuck into this. And, and, and I'm gonna go, you know, I have, I have some really strong critiques of the political aspects of conservatism. That is not a critique of socially conservative values. When I, when I dig in and rip this stuff apart, I'm not talking about people who are socially conservative. Yeah, just to kind of add on there, um, I was out with a friend this past weekend and he had a lot of ideas because I label myself a socially conservative libertarian. He had a lot of ideas surrounding that label. And yeah. I think that kind of gets thrown around a lot and not a lot of people really focus on the definition of that. So by that, I mean, you know, being more socially conservative in your personal life, where you're delaying gratification and you're not, you know, it's not free love. You're not going out and banging your neighbor and banging the dog and banging the woman up the street. You're very conservative in that respect. And the, and the Overton window on what social conservatism is has, has shifted quite a bit. Like I, I lean socially conservative. I do not qualify as a social conservative. Uh, I'm in my thirties. I don't have kids. I've got a divorce under my belt. You know, I have cats right now instead of children. In strict social conservative circles, I am a, I am a complete failed experiment. I have a career instead of a, a strong like nuclear family. But, you know, whatever. And maybe those are some failures on my part and maybe they're not. Everybody's a unique individual. 
But I really think that, so like, let's look at what, what do conservatives want? I think that, that what they really want is they want to restore what they think is a sense of normalcy, right? Like the appreciation for the nuclear family. They're very anti-degeneracy. And there are different reasons for that. And I don't think that everybody's even thought through why they're opposed to what they believe are degenerate lifestyles, but they're trying to bring back what they think is normal and good and, and healthy. And I think that, although I don't agree with their approach to it, there's something to be said for maintaining like a moral culture. I just don't think that politics is the way to achieve it. Right. And that's why I typically tell people when they kind of come at me, when I talk about social conservatism, it's guidelines, it's not gospel. You don't have to live this way, but this is my personal recommendation. Anybody's free to disagree with me. I don't know everything there is to know. But um, so this is somewhere where I compliment the political writers because they do tend to lean socially conservative, although there are definitely some politicians that do not embody those values wholly. So um, I, I guess, is there anything else either you guys want to add on kind of all that before we move on? Oh, I mean, yeah. What do, so what do modern day conservatives like? They don't seem to recognize that their goal of restoring normalcy requires actions that are outside of the political world. Right. That's something that that bothers me. And I feel like Ron DeSantis, like with the Florida bill, he's sort of he's sort of on the edge. So, okay, we're acknowledging there's a problem in in public schools and we want to remove that problem. And it's he thinks it's manifesting culturally and that politics is the way to cut that out. And so it's like he's aware of an issue but he's not addressing the culture. And I don't know if he can as a politician. I mean, he could try, you know, he could be an example and and so on and so forth. But I believe that institutions like public school, welfare, warfare, which is ultimately a form of welfare because it's got the VA attached to it and it creates all these entitlement programs. Like those are the things that drive what conservatives view as degenerate behavior because it allows people to backslide and say, oh, you know, maybe I don't have to be careful about who I have sex with. I don't have to take birth control. That would be terrible for me to be a single mom, but now I can get dependent, you know, I can get some help. Help is out there for me, which sounds like a, such a sweet, wonderful thing to say. Um, no one wants single mothers or, or war widows to be out on their own. Like that's horrible, but there's always this conservative place for, state for for state functions to take care of people and i think that that is absolutely at odds with trying to have this socially conservative culture like the two are just incompatible okay pat anything to add there i know you wrote a article kind of um talking about the florida bill uh, that i i know i've read through or uh, you sent me a couple screenshots of it but uh just kind of elaborate your thoughts on some of what angela said and uh you know i guess shout out continue on with what she was going on about well like in oh the the screenshots of an article i wrote i mean i basically i wrote an article that i didn't publish because i i was i didn't know if it was the proper time to be saying it but basically posing the question are we in a moral panic right now because we know that moral panics are they they happen throughout society they've happened through American society. And it's not to say that I'm not at all concerned with what what's happening in public schools. And I'm not belittling that at all. Let's be absolutely clear. And I have to be very clear about it. 
But I think that we need to just take a look at ourselves because this moral panic has, it, it turns into witch hunts. Yeah. And, and I think we just need to be very careful about addressing the real problems and making sure that it doesn't turn into some kind of crazed mob justice. Right. I, I agree. And I just ultimately, so like, I think that people are being very reactionary right now. I think they have good reason to react, mm -hmm. but I don't believe that the strategy is the best way to approach it because I feel like we are trying to leap over the, the root of the problem and just to slap it down with political measures. And, and that's not going to work. And at best, we might see balkanization of these issues. And maybe some people will, will settle for that. But I know that there are plenty of people in California who, for whatever reason, like they can't move out of the state and they're so used to public education, right? So, so they're just trying to fight this battle over here and they're, they're stuck here and it's just a big mess. And I would much rather point to like a real solution, not a Band-Aid or to trap people within the paradigm of conservatives are just progressives driving the speed limit because that's what it feels like uh it definitely felt that way with donald trump pushing his like warp speed vaccine stuff that i was like dude that's not that doesn't get me excited at all you know like i don't stick myself yeah well and we're still two years later and he still won't stop talking about it and so this has been one of my biggest issues is that a lot of the gop guys aren't willing to say like look we cannot do Donald Trump in 2024. There's so much baggage with this specific guy who ran for president. And, you know, you could say, oh, he was anti-war. He started an anti-war streak on the right. But did he really? Because there was no ending of the wars. The drone strikes got worse. Um, and we've now just increased tensions with China tenfold. We murdered Soleimani and damn near started World War III over Iran. For what? If, who could explain that? I don't know. Um, and and, and not to mention the escalationism with Russia, too. I mean, yep. building bases in Poland and then okay. leaving, leaving two major yep. treaties. Okay, yeah, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. And tearing up the Iran deal and other things like that. So I've kind of said for a while now that I don't think the political right became anti-war. I think they just shifted their focus now, instead of saying that we should kill these bastard Muslims because they hate us for our freedom. I think now they're saying China and the China virus has caused our economy to completely collapse. And it's because of China that we now have all this inflation and all these issues. And obviously they blame Joe Biden too, but what was the main talking point in 2020? China, 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 China. And a lot of the Republicans are great. Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Green, they sound great in a lot of these issues, but the problem is their solution is we need to stop focusing on all this so we can focus on China. Right. right? It's like they get close and then I'm excited. I'm like, oh yes, Marjorie yeah. Taylor Green made disparaging <laughs> comments about the military. Right. And then I'm like, oh, you don't, you know, it's well, the analogy I was going to make was really crass, but uh, we almost get there. And then it's like we get po political blue balls because it just never happens. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's what I mean by they shifted their focus because yeah. it used to be it's okay to kill Muslims because they hate us for our freedom. But now it's okay. Well, we have to, you know, compete with China. And people will say, okay, well, they're a hostile actor on the world stage. But that excuses our own hand in this cookie jar, per se, because China has gained a lot of power because of American manipulation. And then it's funny, one of Trump's talking points was that uh, China manipulates their currency. <laughs> it's like, well, right. 
if that isn't the pot calling the kettle black, I don't know what is. And this was a big part of William F. Buckley's policy. And he is one of the people that paleoconservatives really look to. He was all about expanding wars for empire. And he did not care that people were, you know, disliking being taxed. He was like, well, you know, we got to have taxes so that we can continue to fund our overseas issues, you know, and, and we just need to have the right taxes and for the right purposes. And I'm like, uh, what d- define right purposes? And it, it's not, it's not uh, a minimum, what I consider a minarchist position. It's not just to defend our property, it's to expand our empire. And that's, that's not what I'm about. Right, Pat. Yeah, I, I got nothing else right now. All right. Well, um, Angela, I know you wanted to kind of hit on the history of the paleo movement. I know we've kind of tangentially talked about it, but um, if you kind of want to elaborate more um, your thoughts on the history and kind of, I guess, where it's at today. Yeah. So so I think a lot of this, I think it really got popularized, at least within the, the broader liberty movement, not just the party, with Pat Buchanan and Rothbard putting his support behind it. And um, I think that people were rightfully concerned about the disintegration of family values and, and, and they felt that that's gotta be you know, restored. But paleos thought that the way you do that is through the state. And one of my biggest critiques is that there's no recognition that moral degeneracy and cultural decline have deeper causes and they can't just be cured by like changing the curriculum in Florida schools, things, okay, things yeah. like that. To, to kind of touch on this, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, this is something that I really focus on. And I think that um, the Libertarian Party should focus on as well. Um, Taylor had brought up the first time I had him on my podcast, mm-hmm. who was on the previous podcast, critiquing the LP, was that um, the LPMC is not explicitly right wing on culture. And right. sometimes I kind of cringe on this consistent focus on being right wing because it, it almost becomes... Uh, a circle jerk where everything that's right wing is good and everything that's left wing is bad. Right. And right. I, I, I don't like and playing then, fast and loose with those kind of terms. Yeah. And, and so here's a great example, right? Like Marjorie Taylor Greene, for some reason, still thinks that cannabis is the devil's lettuce and should stay illegal. I, I don't hate her. I'm not like triggered by her. But this is this is an issue that I don't believe is right wing because this is a this is a mo- bodily autonomy, medical freedom issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like for me, I have, I have Crohn's disease. I'm mostly recovered from it. But if I get a flare up, uh, CBD oil and THC are what cure that and keep me off of horrendous pharmaceutical drugs that damage me. That's not degenerate behavior. That's actually like very wholesome and responsible. And it's something that would be good for your family. So like if I was going to have a bunch of kids, do you want me drugged up on basically chemo all the time and like trying to go through pregnancy on that? Or should I be taking cannabis oil once a week in small doses under the supervision of a midwife? That just seems much more socially conservative and wholesome to me. Right. And on top of that, you don't have to bog down the medical system right, right. now with our completely you know, screwed up. Exactly. Body, you know, the, which the is medical industrial complex, which is totally in bed with the state. Uh, And it's very difficult to be someone with a chronic medical condition who depends on insurance and not also be dependent on the state because so much of it is subsidized and so much of it through regulatory practices, through intellectual property and and so on and so forth. Like it's not always obvious to people 
who don't deal with that sort of stuff all the time. So I don't blame anyone for, for not being like aware of how bad it is. But if you are a hardcore dependent on insurance, you are probably a hardcore dependent on the state, which is not an ideal situation from a liberty perspective. Obviously. So um, yeah, I, I completely agree. But uh, to kind of bring it back to what you were saying earlier before I so cleverly yeah. alarmed it, <laughs> it was about culture. And I think that's something very, very important because the abortion issue, right? I consider myself pro-life. So this is not a, it is a moral issue, but the problem, you can't fix this by government fiat, right? This right. has to be a moral deal. And the problem is that we've taught people and we've taught women in particular that, okay, well, it's okay if you abort your child, you know, in the third or fourth trimester at this point. Well, that's not necessarily a failing of government, although they definitely play a hand in it. We haven't taught people that, hey, you need to be responsible for your, you know, for having sex with people. When you let somebody between your legs, there's going to be consequences with that. And it's wrong to take a life that was a result of that. Therefore, this is a cultural issue, and they never yes. seem to approach it this way. And I personally think that's the way it needs to be approached. So um, yeah, yeah they, they, they tend to lack the cultural approach. And the amount of abortions that happen right now, I believe, are a product of the cultural revolution of the 60s. That, that's the most obvious example. That's what really popularized birth control. That's when Roe versus Wade happened. Uh, that's when prayer was taken out of school, you know, and whether or not it should be allowed in school, like you're relying on a, on a public like government institution to tell you what is and isn't okay. That's like, you've got to have a cultural response to cultural problems, trying to just wield political authority over it doesn't fix it. And we've seen that with cannabis too, right? Because the people are just like, no, we're not having it. We don't care about federal regulations. We're going to consume weed anyway. And you know, smoking weed is not like aborting a baby, but, but the sentiment of um, rebellion against the state is, is still there because it's been culturally implanted in everyone. Oh, yeah, you know, I've, I've actually never thought about it to that extent, but yeah, that's simply true. So um, I guess you were kind of touching on some of the paleo yeah. strategy from the 90s. Do you want to kind yeah. of continue down that yeah, so one of the things that Buchanan did, a couple of the things, right? He defended Social Security and Medicare and unemployment. And he actually made fun of Austrian economics a couple of times. So that, that is very triggering to me. That's like a red flag. And they just thought that we must advance the socially conservative agenda at all costs. And so that means we're going to weaponize the state. And that means we're going to inject state programs with social conservatism. And I think that a lot of people were very reactionary to things that were happening in the country in a moral panic and so on and so forth. So they were like, just, just like any populist movement, they're like, we're on board, you know, we got to fight the left, we got to fight against this and fight against that. But they never built the proper foundation. So I think that the paleo strategy under Buchanan with conservatives is just short-sighted and reactionary, and it seeks to ultimately operate within the framework of the state. But the framework of the state will always backslide into leftism because it incentivizes people to relax their morals and their behavior under the safety net of the state. So you can't even continue to maintain your momentum. It's just always going to fall apart. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, actually. Uh, Pat, do you have anything to kind of tag on there? 
I, this other thing that I've been, and I don't know if this is exactly on point, but this other sure. thing that I don't have an answer to, but I've thought about it, are we wrongly coming to a foregone conclusion that being conservative is better for liberty, that it's, it's better at fostering liberty? And I know, like you kind of mentioned this earlier, Kyle, that we're just assuming that everything that's right wing is good and everything that le that's left wing is bad. And like I said, I, I'm a conservative myself, just cult culturally and socially. But are we are we wrongly assuming that? I think sometimes, yes. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Um, I guess, Angela, you seem like you have some thoughts on that. And well, I, I would be very interested to hear that. So like the weed example I gave. That's a terrible, like, no, that's terrible. Social conservatives need to move away from that. Uh, Donald Trump pushing his vaccine thing. Thankfully, that didn't catch on. But if it had, no, th then they would be trying to mandate that stuff under under the guise of moral superiority and, and hygiene. That was a big thing with the Nazis, right? Hygiene, we must push hygiene. I just, I don't, I, you gotta have, use wisdom and discernment, right? To sort some of these things out. Like this is good, this is bad. Really it's like, what are you fighting against? Okay, so we're fighting against the state replacing the family unit because what that really is, is driving, a, it's anathema to individualism. Because individuals and families, it's almost like, they're almost like little natural anarchist communities, right? Because they pop up organically without uh, state authority. You know, you could, you could wave a marriage certificate or whatever, but, but you don't have to have those. And people just naturally associate. And so I, I think one of the driving factors to decide, like, is it a good right-leaning thing or bad is, does it support individualism and the family unit in its natural state? or does it try to crush that, destroy it, or accidentally, well-meaning way, replace it? And, and I'm, I'm gonna kind of pick apart this question too, because I'm having Kim Robinson as a writer with us at the Libertarian Institute, and I'm having him on this weekend to kind of explore that because you know he expressed to me and he had a piece kind of going at, you know, the kind of the individualist anarchist wing, you know, the, those roots there and, and pointing out how, you know, you don't have to be a right winger to be friendly to libertarianism. And um, yeah. so I, I think it's an interesting question to pose. And it's harder for us to see right now, especially because um, of the current environment in which we live in how in a lot of ways, and I think this is one of my bigger critiques of, of the, the post libertarian moment, I guess you could say, is that it seems to me that as much as they talk about low time preference behavior, their entire identity is built around a high time preference reactionary movement. Okay, well, Absolutely. I guess I guess that kind of gives a good uh, segue to the post libertarianism kind of moment. <laughs> I can tell Angela's just ready to uh, start brewing here. So um, I guess real quick, let's kind of define that as well, just so that way we're not kind of strawmanning their positions and we kind of give the devil its due, so to speak. Okay, so I think it's difficult to define. Let's throw out some concepts and see if we kind of agree on them and, and then if it's giving proper credit, right? So yeah. there's an emphasis on achieving, gaining political power. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a mix between agorism and the GOP strategy. So it's not totally solid, but yeah. there does not seem to be room for... Uh, pure libertarianism in the strategy. It all seems to be toward, gravitating towards 
mostly gravitating towards consolidating political power through the GOP um, or just operating completely outside the framework of politics. Right. And it seems like there's a focus on developing individual wealth, which to to once again get the devil to, I think it's a completely reasonable thing to do. Yeah. But I don't think that's a mutually exclusive thing to post-libertarianism. And I think sometimes they straw man the LP position and think that nobody in the LP is saying you should be individually wealthy when right. I, I mean I personally tell people all the time, like, hey, you should be as healthy and as personally wealthy as possible before you start doing political activism. Yeah. Just because you're going to be a lot more influential that way. Um, if you're not healthy, if you're not well read, if you're not a complete person, right? So to speak, yeah. um, you're not going to be able to as easily influence people that you want to believe in your ideas. Yeah. So uh, I don't find that mutually exclusive, but that's something that they hit on, hit on a lot. Would you guys I agree would, with that? Yes. And I would also say that they mostly seem to really like the writings of Hans Hermann Hoppe. Yes. Which um, they don't, you know, get to own that, but that seems to be something that they aggressively put an emphasis on. In, sure. in your critique, Angela, earlier about the bad things about the right, the imperialism, that kind of stuff, your critique is right out of a theory of socialism and capitalism. Because there, I in, and I don't know if you did this intentionally, but the chapter where Hoppe critiques conservatism, that's exactly what his points are. That's where we're going. <laughs> so, yeah. So one of the things that Hoppe says in uh, The Intellectual Incoherence of Conservatism, which is a fantastic essay, is you can have one, socialism or welfare, or the other, traditional morals, but you can't have both. So you get welfare or traditional morals. You cannot have both. That This is sign language for different. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, like what's interesting, what's, what's really compelling to me is not only just like literally what I see, but basically Hans Hermann Hoppe called the paleo strategy working through the GOP a failed experiment. He told people to pack it up. He didn't agree with what Rothbard tried to do. Um, and I absolutely like, you know, man economy and state, anatomy of the state, fantastic books. I love Rothbard's work. You know, no one's perfect, you know, and you, you get a little bit older and maybe you'd go on down a weird path because you're, you know, bands do it when they put out their crappy 20th album. So, uh, yeah, you so know I, they're kind of phoning it in when they start putting out the greatest hits records. Or... Yeah, you know, and so, you know, Rothbard had a moment where he was he was a little bit off base. And I think that Hans Hermann Hoppe did did well to correct that. And and one thing that I would say about the post-libertarian movement is that they should really heed the writings of Hoppe when he was calling out the conservative movement and saying that it failed. And we saw that happen again with Ron Paul's runs. It's like, yeah, Ron Paul is the person who like really connected all the dots for me. Like I was very into libertarianism before, but he's the one that really like made it all work for me in, in my head and in my personal life and my political activism. But to see the way the GOP treated him, like I was like, this just doesn't work. Like you've got literally the best candidate ever. This is, the, you can't, he's like the only human being like him and they won't even respect him and and elect him like they're they're insane like they're they're hopeless sure so um is there anything else you want to touch on because i i want to 
steel man their position and let's steel man okay let's steal man so what just look, one, one last thing sorry my my other thing was that i i don't exactly understand how the post-libertarian strategy is supposed to be any more practical or realistic than a lalbert fever dream you know what i mean because and i think that we're gonna we're gonna address that um yes we are and but but that's kind of my point too is that i i just don't understand and maybe that's my problem <laughs> that's Sorry, where we need the steel manning okay yeah. so i, I want to start off by saying that um to give credit where it's due the gop of 2022 is different than that of 2012 would you guys kind of agree with that yeah okay uh and once again it's just to give the double their due i believe that there's different problems you know obviously from then to now but lest we not forget in 2020 when Donald Trump couldn't wait to rain free money on everybody, he wanted to throw Thomas Massey out of the GOP because he was the one calling for a vote on this, right? That yep. is, it's very similar to what happened to Ron Paul. The one guy who's a true Republican through and through, right? They want to get rid of this guy because he wants to stop free money. I, I mean, High time preference. <laughs> we'll, we'll gloss right over that and say Donald Trump was so great and he was this America first Republican. But then as soon as you have a real Republican opposing big government, big spending, then now all of a sudden, well, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll put yeah. that one out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. But I'm, once I'm, again, to kind of get back to my central point, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, just the GOP today, the populist right does have more of an anti-war fervor amongst them, which is good. But once again, how deep does this anti-war fervor run? Is it just because we don't like spending wars or spending money on stupid wars in the Middle East? Or is it because we're not fighting the right wars? I don't well, know. Well, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, I, in, my, in, my, in my piece, I, I think it was the cheese in the trap where I talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then there was another one where I, I said... Uh, the title of my article is Lou Rockwell was right about China, talking about how, you know, if 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 these guys want to have tougher economic policy on China, I think that's their prerogative. Fine. You know, but at the same time, we need to analyze and look at exactly what our China policy has looked like, as Biden calls it, um, extreme competition with China. You know, that means training Taiwanese Marines. That means selling tai Taiwan hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons. That but I means... thought he was Beijing Biden, right? Beijing Biden, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just completing Obama's Asia pivot and you know just increasing Trump's China policy. And so, I mean, I could go on all day long about this, like, uh, you know, new embassies in the Solomon Islands, pledging to protect the Whitson Reef, uh, to, to protect the Philippines' claims to the Whitson Reef, and then uh, pledging to protect Japan's claims to the, uh, there's an island group there that the name's escaping me. Um, so, you know, accusing China of genocide of the Uyghurs, and I've done, you know, extensive work yeah. on that, talking about how it's not exactly accurate. And, uh, you know, DeSantis repeating that claim, and there's more to say about DeSantis. So, but if you want tougher China policy, that's your prerogative. But if you don't mean that, you need to say so, and you need to say it really loudly. Especially, and, yeah. And what yeah. makes all of that possible? Aggressive uh, wealth redistribution 
yeah. through oppressive taxation. That's which right. is anathema to having people build wealth independently and embracing capitalism and moving away from the state. Like the two are just fundamentally incompatible. And once again, what is the end result of all this hawkish rhetoric around China? And like Pat said, if you're not willing to go to war with them, then you need to say that explicitly and very, very loudly. You need to explain your intentions with this very, very hawkish rhetoric because to the average person, it doesn't look good. And I've had people that I've worked with, I'm a mechanic by trade, right? I work on cars, you know, nine to 12 hours a day, five days a week. I know the GOP base very well. So it's really funny when I have people call me leftist because like you guys have absolutely no idea. I walk my dogs in the morning. I see Trump flags all over the place. I drive five minutes up the road. There's a farm right there with a, a Trump flag, you know, the size of my freaking house. I know these people exceedingly well. And believe me, they're terrified out of their wits about China because of all this ridiculous hawkish rhetoric. So and if you're accusing them of genocide, okay, what is the end result? What are you willing to do about this? And if it's not military intervention, say that. But if you're going to say, hey, let's sail some warships through the Taiwan Strait. Let's say we're going to defend Taiwan. Let's arm Taiwan. And let's be extremely hawkish on China and a very tough policy on them. To me, the end result of that is, well, let's go to war with these bastards. That's how it looks to me and people will tell me i'm wrong i'm a lulbert because you know china's a hostile actor but you know what's what's the difference between the state talking points and an actual threat because yeah. th- there, there's a grain of truth there but how big is this grain of truth are we talking about you know this guitar pick right here or are we talking about this notepad or are we talking about the guitar rack or the amp behind me well, and what's, is the, what's the size of that is the truth important And this really cuts to, you know, like a really foundational principle, which is like, is truth one of our highest orders? Should it be culturally? Should it be politically? Are you willing to like lie and sacrifice the truth to further your own agenda? And then where does that get you? Like to to what end? What to what end? And and what I see too is just uh, this is anecdotal, but a general unwillingness to criticize bad policy and bad position Mm -hmm. because this is this is a remnant of when i was you know a a republican is hey that's my guy i have to defend him no matter what and i can't just say yeah that's awful and i don't stand behind that and um so yeah it's just well and this is another kind of weakness i see with the paleo gop route is that you will have to bite your tongue at times because when you see failures and there were plenty under Donald Trump, you have to bite your tongue because you lose relationship capital with people because you're not willing to, or because you don't want to lose that capital because you can't criticize their guy. And I've, I witnessed this in my personal life. It was funny because all my coworkers used to think I was such an awesome guy because I'm a very principled libertarian and I'm good at calling out the woke stuff and being against the left and all the people that they hate, right? But then as soon as I start criticizing their guy for things that they should criticize him for too, where they fail by their own standards, 
now all of a sudden, oh, you know, I can't believe you. And no, oh, you're, you're a Democrat. You voted for Joe Biden. It's like, well, no, I'm calling out bad policy. I'm calling out a failure when it's a failure. If you guys would do the same thing, we wouldn't be in this current mess that we're in, where we have this ever-expanding state, and we have to use the power of the state to stop the state because you guys weren't willing to hold you guys, you know, your guys' feet to the fire. That's very, very important because if he thinks he's doing good no matter what, which we saw with Donald Trump, then why would he ever stop? Hey, this is great. Let's just keep going. And we're seeing this, I think, come out in some of the policies we're seeing with Ron DeSantis. It's okay to attack private business because it's in the interest of people that we like. But right. if it's somebody that we don't like, then we can punish them. Because, At what point? Oh, God. Because they're always operating within the framework of the state. They're going to weaponize the state against their enemies and they never fix fix the root problem. Right. And I think this is why the post-libertarian fixation with power fails. We never address the root question. It's just ping-ponging the ball back and forth and saying, well, that's just the way it is. But it's not. That's literally not the way that it is. Because if that was just the... It's like, I guess it's like the snake eating its tail at this point. Right. And... If um, I understand using the state to perhaps free people and making an argument for, okay, well, this is better than this, but at what point are we now outside of the realm of what we should consider acceptable? And honestly, that's a line that I'm not 100% certain on, but you know, you have to take it case by case by case by case. Okay. Is it okay to, or should we say, Hey, maybe it's not cool to enforce vaccine mandates when it's coming down from the federal government. Okay, I'm not losing any sleep over that. But when you start, let's say, messing with private property that's been rightfully somebody's for an extended period of time, um, we've kind of crossed the line there, right? And I'm not yep. very well read on this whole Disney deal. Okay, they say there's special privileges. I, I sincerely don't know. But once again, what's what's your objective? Do we want a more free society or are we just going to continue to use the same blunt instrument to pound down people that we don't like? And then eventually that turns around on us. Yeah, I want a more free society because it always turns around on us. Right. That's, and, that's what we're experiencing now under this administration. Right. And we're they kind of meme it and say, oh, well, it's, you know, we have to use it. But OK, seriously, take on the issue because. What happens if DeSantis loses, right? That is a serious possibility. And look, I understand you can incentivize leftists to leave, whatever, but you should never not have a plan B, right? What this happens is, if DeSantis loses? Right. And I think this is sort of like, sort of like disease. We are treating all of the symptoms and not the root cause. Right. And that's what happens when you operate strictly within the framework of political power. You don't ever get to the heart of the matter. Why are teachers thinking that it's cool to have explicit sexual conversations with, with children who are eight years old? Why? Like, I, I understand, like, let's make that illegal. Let's do, let's do what we can. But, but what the hell is happening right. that this has ever become acceptable in the first place? And if we don't get to that, then we don't actually solve the problem. It's just like throwing Tylenol at someone when they've got the flu and, and you're waiting it out, you know, but maybe it's not the flu, maybe it's cancer. We got, we got to treat that. Right. And I, I don't understand either what exactly is meant by using power to defeat your enemies or using the power of politics 
to defeat your enemies. Like I need some concrete examples because sure. if we're making it illegal to talk about sex to kids in elementary school, okay. I don't see where libertarians would necessarily disagree with that. Maybe some culture it within the libertarian movement or the libertarian party would the left libertarians perhaps. But um, on the other side, you know, what are you going to do? I like an example that I, that I heard was, okay, well, if communists in your covenant community are talking about and advocating communism, then you physically remove them. Okay. Well, if you are going to take over your school district and physically remove teachers who are doing X, Y, Z, mm -hmm. I don't understand how that's any more, or excuse me, I don't understand how that's any less utopian than a Lalbert advocating for Ancapistan. I, I don't, I, it's not realistic. Yeah, and, you know, how, to find well, physically remove, how, you know, how far are you willing to go to do all this? I mean, are you going to have like a program where you, I mean, get rid of all the, you know, you chase school board teachers or, you know, people out of the community or. So, so Hoppe talks about this a little bit. Yeah. But in order to do any of this, you've got to have the cultural framework to make it happen and trying to do it in a reactionary way, like our legal framework doesn't exist in a way that supports this. It just doesn't, we have a massive amount of precedent. And if you're gonna do this, it really needs to be like a cultural move. So that like, like perfect example, California, tons of people, they're like, I hate Florida, I'll never go there. What an evil bigoted place. That's a cultural thing. That's not so much a legal thing. And they had that idea way before, way before the, the recent Florida bill came out. Like it's, you know, California people are really deranged when it comes to, to Florida and Texas and red states. But that's all cultural, that's not political. Right, and I think that kind of gets to the overarching theme here that we've been kind of hitting on is that a lot of these issues tend to be cultural. Yep. And I, I think it's the short-term solution to say, hey, well, let's use the state to punish the people we don't like and encourage the things we do like, which, okay, you can make an argument for that, but how sustainable is this? You know, you could say that, okay, well, we're going to, once again, encourage people, we're going to use the state to make sure that this doesn't get taught. But now you're kind of putting a bandaid on a snake bite because you haven't quite fixed the underlying issue. Why the hell do we think it's culturally okay to teach people about this? And this is yeah. why, this, this kind of goes back to my recommendations for social conservatism, is that it's guidelines, not gospel. We need to encourage people to be culturally, you know, socially conservative if you think that's the way to go. Right. And how do we, yeah, and how would we get there? So it's interesting, like we're trying to balance this conversation between talking about power. How do you, how do you get power? What does that look like? And then we have this end result, like how do we get to this end result? Um, how would we even walk it back at this point? Everything that's happened. Like yeah. how do we, how do we get to a more, a more, not perfect. I don't even know what perfect is. How do we get to a more culturally, conservative society right i honestly don't know sorry the fire alarm's going off my dogs are going to be howling <laughs> pat do you have anything to add and uh to kind of continue i don't want to leave my dog too long because it's going to be howling yeah yeah well i i don't know exactly how you get there i mean i in in a lot of ways I, I just don't have the answer and i'm mm -hmm. i'm fine with saying i don't have the answer i'm gonna yeah. raise my family and yeah I don't have a perfect answer, but I think a big part of it is pulling back from the state. And I have seen some really 
positive reactions against the COVID regime. And it hasn't been, the ones that I've seen that look to be the most long lasting and genuine and authentic are not ones where people are saying, oh, we're gonna weaponize the state to own the left. It's people who are saying, I'm opting out of this. I've been red pilled. It is, it is all an evil, disgusting nightmare. I'm gonna go be on a, a move out into a rural area, raise my family and buy a bunch of chickens. And, and that looks like a better way to do it is through just like a great awakening and an emphasis on community. Yeah. None of it has to do with the state. Right. I agree completely with that. Do you have anything to add on there? Because I, I kind of had a point that I kind of wanted to hit on. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I've done. That's what I did with my COVID speeches. You know, I, I went around to venues around here, whoever would host me at supper clubs, mm -hmm. um, bars and um, that kind of stuff. And I, I just talked about, you know, I, I did, you know, kind of what Tho Bishop has done, really. I mean, to be honest, I, I wrapped Rothbard and all the things that we love into a pill like you would give to a dog like a peanut butter around medication or something like that. And, and yeah. they, they loved it. I mean, they did. Yeah, the, the end result of this sort of like with the paleo strategy for me is that I think you can adopt some of it within the Libertarian Party framework. You can adopt, you can try to adopt some of it within the GOP. I, I think it's too corrupt, but at the local level, you could do that. And you can sort of adopt it in to a certain extent, right, within any political framework or, or cultural framework. But if you go too far in that direction, you become trapped in this catch-22 or this paradox where you're advocating for state intervention and state intervention is what is creating your problem. So I think it makes more sense to operate sort of horizontally along the paleo strategy to move people towards a more conservative lifestyle without shaming them or bludgeoning them over the head for their, you know, like for being gay, for uh, being divorced or for not having kids. Because honestly, the other thing that frustrates me about a lot of the conservative like reactionaryism is people can't go back in time and change their lifestyle. No one can go back in time to their twenties, opt out of getting whatever stupid degree they got and start investing in something or do, like you can't. And it doesn't give people hope who are a little bit too far gone, it makes people maybe more black pilled and angry. And I think that, you know, I don't really see that. I didn't read about that much in nineties uh, paleo strategy, but I do see that happening now in this sort of like post libertarianism that it doesn't give people who are like in their late thirties or their fifties, it doesn't give them any hope. And I think that we really got to give people hope whatever sure. we're preaching. Right. Uh, Pat, do you have anything to add on there? Because I got a uh, pretty, pretty good point that I really wanted to hit on. No, you go ahead, man. Okay. So one of the things that they have often critiqued is this idea of restarting the Ron Paul revolution, right? Yeah. Where we don't need another Ron Paul revolution, either that, or why don't we do the Ron Paul revolution the same way that Ron Paul did it, which was running through the Republican party. And this is something that I've tossed around a lot in my head, too, because it's like, okay, well, there is a air of legitimacy to the Republican Party to a lot of people. And I don't think anybody would necessarily have any issue with that. But take, for example, and this is somebody that I should have thought to reach out to, but I did, um, Shane Hazel, right? He ran for, um, he ran as a Republican in, what was it, 2018 for Senate, right? Yeah. Um, 
And he said that he couldn't get anything done because it was so corrupt and they didn't want anything to do with him, but he was teaching constitution classes. And I mean, he's incredibly well-read. He's very well-spoken. He has no shame. He's a great dude, but he couldn't get through. So um, in 2022, it's, it's definitely different than it was in 2012, but um, you know, why not use the Republican party to do the same thing that Ron Paul did? Um, what, what would be, the reason to not do that. Um, curious both of you guys' thoughts on that. So it got pretty far and it woke a lot of people up and then it fizzled out. And the fizzle out is the problem for me that I feel that ultimately, you know, in some ways it was a huge win because it woke a lot of people up, but the end result was a failure. Okay, we, and didn't get, we didn't get him elected. Right, and I think that's the thing that they tend to hit on a lot is they say it's a failure because nothing substantially changed, which I understand, but once again, this isn't a overnight you're in Ancapistan. Exactly. And I, I think that's, and I don't want to straw man that necessarily, yes. but I think that's kind of what they do when it comes to the LP approach in the Ron Paul revolution is they say, okay, well, you know, we had four years of the Ron Paul revolution and nothing happened. Therefore it's a failure. They're not well, entirely wrong, but it's not a, we're there. It's because it was gatekept. It was gatekept by neocons. So what I want to do with a libertarian party is provide a framework for the Ron Paul revolution and, and to thrive and not be gatekept and not be pushed down and, and kicked off of platforms and covered up by people like Mitt Romney. And it's a place where organic growth can happen and prosper without having to compete with all these other bad ideas. And we definitely don't, we're not going to have the national stage. Never say never, but that's, you know, I'm a realistic person, but we do have a lot of local stages. And I believe that the future of politics is local because of everything that we've seen happen with the COVID regime and how it was up to local cities and municipalities, a couple of states to stand down dictatorial edicts from governors, from the president and so on. Like in California, in California, LA County and Orange County were totally different areas. Central California and Southern California, night and day difference. Nobody enforced all these stupid mandates in rural California. Like that's the way that you can maintain your freedom. And I think it's more in alignment with a Hoppian strategy too, of trying to have a bunch of tiny little city states. And I think that that is a really good vehicle to build a strong grassroots movement for basically Ron Paul Revolution 2.0. Okay. Um, Pat, you were a, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, Ron Paul was kind of your gateway into libertarianism, correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So uh, do you kind of want to add anything uh, to what Angela had to say there? Well, I mean, I, I think not only was Ron Paul, I mean, ultimately a failure in terms of winning, but I think it was co-opted and redirected in a way that same energy was taken and so easily transferred because it wasn't, I mean, for the vast majority of people, it wasn't a principled revolution, I don't think. And I'm open to being wrong, but uh, that's just kind of my take. Well, there was a lot of populism, which is fantastic because it means it's popular, but ultimately what happened, let's see. So we had some really cool things came out of it. Students for Ron Paul, which morphed into Young Americans for Liberty. Well, now it's Young Americans for the Empire. 
which is now, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed to say that it's been infected by the worst elements of the Libertarian Party. Oh, um, you know, and that's a whole nother like bunny trail we could go down, you know, my, my duty to clean that up so that it doesn't further spread to any other principled liberty organizations right. working on it. But yeah, we really need, we need a clean place to plant those seeds. The, the other part being too, is that, um, you know, I agree with Dave Smith here is that if there is a party with the name libertarian in it, we better make yes. sure it's libertarian. I mean, yes. So yes, yeah. it's, it exists cats out of the bag. Mm-hmm. So we can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. We might as well clean it up. Right. So their criticism essentially was that it's a two-party system. Deal with it. Um, and I don't know, honestly, how true this is, because as we were talking a little bit off the, uh, you know, before we started rolling, um, Mark over on the other side of the state here in Pennsylvania, who was on the show twice, he ran for Senate and he was polling 40% in Democrat districts as a blue collar libertarian dude, right? Um, Now, obviously he didn't win, but that's something to kind of take note of. Um, They would say that, hey, people are only going to vote for these two parties. But in my opinion, I really think it's changing. And I really think that there is an opportunity for libertarians to reach across both aisles because um, you know, we can't outright the right. We can't out left the left. We can't be better on these things. And we don't carry that same baggage. Now, to some people, yes, we're going to carry that baggage. And we can obviously get into how we're going to manage to clean that up. But I think that there is an appeal where you can say, hey, we're not either one of these parties. And this is what we're presenting to you. Give this a chance. And um, to kind of tail off here, Um, I'll be the first one to say if there are bad libertarians or libertarians who are doing what they were elected to do, then I'll be the first one to say, okay, well, we're going to get you out. And if there's a better Republican, then I'm okay with that Republican taking your place. I don't want that to be the situation, but if that's the way it has to be, that's the way it has to be, because I believe we're at the point where we can't sit here and dilly-dally around and say, okay, well, we just have to have an L there because it's an L. No, it needs to be somebody who's going to do what they were elected to do. Right, because otherwise we're, nobody wants, when people say America wants a third party, they don't mean America wants another monolithic loser third party that sucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really think that we need to to understand when people say that, We need to actually look at what are they trying to communicate? They don't like the current status quo. Uh, It's not so much about a political party name. It's about something that represents their ideas, their values, and it solves their problems. And right now the political landscape is very destabilized, which is very good for the Libertarian Party. Everything is kind of blowing apart. And like we have caucus wars within the LP, but guess what? They're having them hardcore within the Democratic Party and within the GOP. And I think it's a really good opportunity for us to capitalize on that. Um, And I think that the infighting that you see in the Libertarian Party, some of it's historical and it's always gonna be there, but it's also indicative of of a larger cultural shift within the country. Mm -hmm. And the Mises Caucus is a little bit, we're more attuned to that and we're trying to lead people on the right path. Uh, Yeah, I think there's a lot of great political opportunities right now if we capitalize on them and don't let the state crush it because that would be terrible. Let's not let the state crush these really good opportunities. Okay, yeah, Pat, you got anything, Dad? Yeah, I, I think uh, things would have been a little different, too, if we had seen 
some really strong presidential candidates in the 2016 oh, race. Man, ball and, whiffed. Yeah. Ball whiffed. Huge, huge, gigantic opportunity missed. And given the state of things, I, I think it's going to come again. I think the opportunity is going to come again. I really do. It is. It is. It is my goal and intention to do everything that I can do within the framework of, you know, playing by the rules to like make sure we get someone really good in. That's that's definitely something I'm committed to. No cheating because I don't uh, believe that power is the highest value. I think that the pursuit of truth and, you know, I guess like moral goodness is, is more important than achieving power. Right, right, right. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that too, because in, I, I just wanted to get this point out too, is that it seems like the issue hierarchy on this a more populist side that yeah. we've been talking about is, is number one seems to be fighting the culture war or stopping the COVID regime, which I agree, stopping the COVID regime is incredibly important. However, I put being anti-war above that because, yes. you know, we've seen lockdowns and we've seen the tyranny of, of the COVID regime, but um, the, the warfare state is, is kind of a different animal because it doesn't go really, it doesn't go bad until it goes really, really bad very suddenly. And we've yeah. never seen anything like that before. Okay, so you know what? I'm really glad you brought that up. Angela, go ahead, go first, because there's a pretty big point I kind of wanted to okay. add on to that. So I, I think, you know, like moving with the, operating within the framework of the paleo strategy or post-libertarianism, we constantly come up against like owning the left, owning the left. And if you want to emphasize conservative lifestyles, I think it needs to be within the context of safeguarding the rights of the family unit and the individual, not owning the left or even just standing in direct condemnation of other people's lifestyles. Uh, I think that we need to be an example and prove results, not be judge, jury, and executioner. I just don't think that that's the best way to, to win the culture war. Yeah, that's completely understandable. Um, Pat, do you have anything to add on to that? Well, and in, in, I, I think, you know, Angela kind of touched on this earlier too, but it, when it comes to, you know, actually winning the culture war, I mean, we've always known that the culture war is a divide and conquer distraction. I mean, at yep. its base, it's, it's, uh, it's chase the ball really. And, and not to say that it's, that I'm not alarmed with, you know, uh, with progressive culture because I am certainly, but I, I try to like focus on fighting the issues, not the, not what they see as being the root cause, which they have, as Angela pointed out, the wrong solution for. Right. So, um, to kind of tackle Pat's point earlier, um, it seems like a lot of the paleo libertarians, GOP guys are completely willing to throw foreign policy to the woods, yeah. which I don't think is a good idea at all. And like you said, Pat, it doesn't go bad until it goes really bad. And we haven't seen that yet. Um, we saw that on 9-11. We see that in the occasional terror attacks that happen here at home at the uh, nightclub shooting by Yemeni refugee, which that never really made the news, but I mean, it doesn't take much digging below the surface to figure out right. why that's so bad and what we're doing is garnering hatred. So right now, yeah, you could say we could put anti-war to the side, but you know, it's fine until it's not. And when it's not, it's really not okay. So personally, I can't say I support Ron DeSantis, 
because we know this dude is a you know thoroughbred Zionist and a neocon through and through. And you guys can say, oh, well, he's good on COVID. Oh, yes, I agree. But should we let that, you know, should we compromise on being anti-war with being good on one issue? And I'm not cool with being a one-trick pony when it comes to the White House. Yeah, I prefer him as governor. I don't right. want to see him in the White House. Right. And real quick, just to kind of tail on to that, um, when it comes to the Libertarian Party, um, Nobody in the LPMC has said we should run somebody against Ron DeSantis because I think there's a lot of once again to come from the paleo route, they would criticize the LP and say that they're going to run spoilers against good Republicans. We covered earlier. I don't I've never heard anybody in the LPMC ever say we should run somebody against Ian Smith over in New Jersey because he's a very popular guy who uh, is running for Congress. Nobody right. should run against Thomas Massey. Nobody should run against Ron DeSantis. People who are good, the LPMC is not going to run somebody against. Now, the Libertarian Party may feel differently, but as I understand, the LPMC does not plan to do that. And and some of them do feel very differently. And they're, and they're very triggered when I say, I, I think it wouldn't be a good idea to run against Ron DeSantis, and, which is a, an absurd thing to be upset about. Because right. dial it back, like zoom out and look at the entire picture. We don't have infinite resources. Why? Why not run someone in an electable position? Right. And if you're running for ballot access, why not run in a place that's going to position you in the best possible light? Right. This is this is stupid. We don't have the Coke money. And I'm so sorry to break it to everyone. We don't have the Coke money. So we can't run a decent campaign against Ron DeSantis anyway. We might as well just run someone in a better position. Right. Um Pat, anything to kind of tap on there? Yeah, too. And I, I guess I just want to underline too, because, you know, I, I do have respect for people in the post-libertarian movement, you know, and, and this is, it's an honest disagreement. And um, at the same time, I also want to underscore that, you know, I'm, I'm not allergic to praising good policy. It's just, yeah. I've, I found a lot of bad too. And I, I just have to point it out. It's, yeah. it's in my right. nature. So, um, I guess the whole deal with the foreign policy thing is I really don't think we should let anti-war go to the side just for the sake of owning the left or Absolutely. You know, putting somebody good in the White House. I think you guys would agree as well. Yeah. And I think that the potential for that sort of stuff to get turned against us, like as we grow the military, they can always turn that against us, especially as we see the military become more woke. Like the... Those are the people, if, if we have a woke National Guard, those are the people who are going to be delighted to enforce mandates and martial law under Joe Biden or some other Democrats control. Like that is really frightening. And we need to be cautious of that because the odds of it happening are, it's not really crazy at this point. And, and, and two, to, to pick on DeSantis more, I, I, I put in my piece, Ron DeSantis, champion of liberty, question mark. Uh, is, is You're he really triggering everyone on? right now. I, oh, I yeah, know. I got I got some pushback on it, which which is fair because I think I I overstepped just a little bit. But like, don't forget that DeSantis locked Florida down and for three months, right? I I think it was two or three, something like that. And I three mean, months. all it was all the authoritarian policies. So we know yeah. that when a crisis arises, Ron DeSantis will not take a principled stance. 
I think what he did is that he looked at the data and he made a decision and that decision was based on the data and it wasn't based on on principle. Now I went yeah. out on a little bit of a limb, I will admit, to say that I don't think DeSantis was, he wasn't motivated by principle, he was motivated by political <laughs> opportunism. And I, I didn't present a lot of evidence in my article to support that, to be fair, was a criticism I got. But I think that he he took a big risk. Uh, Monica Perez said that he followed exactly the Cleveland Clinic guideline that he was briefed on. Um, but I think he took a risk with his stance, a big risk with a huge payoff. And, and I think that, you know, very soon afterwards, I can point to a political article saying that his base, all of the, the GOP in Florida rallied around him when he took this stance very soon in the pandemic, and it landed him on, in the national spotlight when Donald Trump uh, invited him to the White House and gave a huge presser praising him, saying that he was the best governor in the nation, and um, it really launched his career, and Trump was the one who launched his career in the first place and got him in the governor position. So I don't think it's a principled stance. And I think it's actually very naive to think that Ron DeSantis is a principled guy. Right. I think it's a reasonable critique. And I know that it upsets everyone, but if we're not willing to scrutinize people in positions of power, then, then we're not willing to really look for the truth and do the right thing. And that's not a good implication. Right. So I'm glad that Pat kind of brought this up about doing the right thing in the right moment. Um, with 2022 being here and 2024 being just right around the corner, um, there's going to be so many right wingers that are going to say, hey, I've been good on this issue all along and people are just going to bite it up because, look, I don't like bash on Joe Biden that much just because it's like what is there to say that hasn't already been said? Am I just throwing gasoline on the fire? What, what, what good is it, right? The yeah. reason why I kind of stick to criticizing the right perhaps more than the left is because I, nobody else does this, I think, necessarily the same way that I do or the same way that Pat does, let's say. Um, and when we think about Donald Trump and people who say, oh, you just have Trump derangement syndrome, but... The, the fact is, is that if we're going to elect this dude as president, he has never stood up for people when it mattered. He never has. And that's something that we need to consider. When you look back at Ron Paul in 2007 on the debate stage, he was willing to take a very unpopular stance, or as other people would point out, the Harry Brown essay in um, you know September 12th of 2001. Yep. To take the stance when it matters, people will hate you. But guess what? It pays dividends down the road. So that being said, um, Trump had basically said, oh, well, there were plenty of people on different sides or whatever when it came to the whole freak Julian Assange. And he doubled down basically on his position of not freeing Assange. And he criticized, um, who was it, Kemp in Georgia for opening up too soon? Clearly, he failed, and clearly, he's not going to be the guy to stand up for the American people when the time actually matters. Now he'll run around and say he's against lockdowns, but when it mattered, he, he couldn't have been worse. So, point being, he's not the right guy. He's not coming to save people. And should we really depend on people who aren't principled when it matters? Because right now, a lot of the right just seems to be good because the left is so bad. But if Donald Trump was in, I think a lot of the issues that we're seeing would still be here. 
and a lot of the right would be supporting him regardless that they wouldn't be willing to criticize him so um long-winded way to say are they radicalized because it's just not their guy or are they radicalized because it's a principled stance personally i don't think it's a principled stance i think it's just because it's not their guy that they feel like they go out on a limb and say the things and do the things they're doing wait what do you mean when you say because it's not their guy because right now it's not Donald Trump in the White House, right? If Donald oh, Trump I see in, what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. If Donald Trump was in the White House, I still think that, you know, the whole Ukraine deal would have happened. We'd have yep. the same exact inflation, yep. possibly even worse. A lot of the issues that are here right now would still be here, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump. It would have different branding and it would be packaged in a different way. Exactly. So that's the only reason why you see people like Candace Owens, people like Ron DeSantis speaking out against it so much because it's very politically expedient. But if it was their guy in the White House right now, they wouldn't have the balls to do it because it would make them look bad. Donald Trump, here's my Donald Trump analogy with, with Republicans. It's like a woman who's in her mid-30s and she gets into a, a really good, better than any other relationship she's had relationship. And she's like, oh, soon he'll propose and we'll have children. She goes from 35 to 38. Boyfriend's not a train wreck. He's not a loser, but he's clearly not about to pop the question and she's like oh no it'll happen soon and we'll have kids okay well now i can't have three kids i'm 39 maybe i can have two kids she's 42 she finally loses her shit breaks up with her boyfriend who fine on his own but he had no intention read the signs woman you've been doing this for like years and it's not inching closer and you, like it's not happening and that's how i feel like with all these like donald trump worshiping republicans so i'm like you gotta like read the room it's not happening he didn't audit the fed like he said he was going to he didn't like end the warfare state with like all of his crazy awesome bombastic tweets in 2014 like that shit just never came to fruition it's, it's like break up and just like move on and find someone better but but they don't they're still like oh oh any day now he'll come back and we'll get married <laughs> and I'll, I'll unfreeze my eggs and it'll all be okay and i'm like oh my it's not happening this is that analogy really bummed me out i know i'm so sorry <laughs> i'm sorry to everyone with frozen eggs <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I've, I've never heard it put that way. And I was kind of confused where you're going, but now it makes sense. And it, that's a really good analogy. Uh, so yeah, Pat, when it comes to being principled and taking a stand when it matters, um, personally, I don't see it in the GOP. And it seems like you kind of feel the same way. Yeah, and, and I hate to, I don't know, I hate to be unfair, I guess. I, I just... Um, I think in my article, I, I realized that I went out on a limb on this and I've been really defensive about it ever since then, but I've since found the evidence. So now I'm stating it on the record. Ah, here we go. That's, uh, yeah. <laughs> That's also my nature. Yeah, hey man, uh, no problem at all. Um, so we've been going for about an hour and a half now, um, pretty close to it. Is there anything you guys feel like you didn't get to? Because I want to make sure um, as we said, the messages that you guys feel like this is something that you could point to and say, hey, if you have questions about the GOP approach from our perspective, um, it's all right here. Is there anything else you guys feel like you missed or you wanted to add? I would just say for the record that that Rod DeSantis is 1,000 million times better than uh, Gavin Newsom or any uh, shithole state governor. Yeah, uh, but we're still, as well. 
we're still allowed to criticize them a little bit. Yes. It's it's allowed. I agree. Yeah. Okay, cool. And I you know, watched, I, <laughs> sorry. I think I, you can also we didn't really get into political power very much, but I would say that that is not exclusive to the GOP and you can do it at the local level. And one of the best ways to gain political power locally is to get active locally and adopt a low time preference strategy where pe people respect you because you're involved and you're doing meaningful work and you're actually doing the work. Okay. And with the exception of people like Donald Trump and a handful of mega wealthy wild cards, you can't just roll in and say, hey, I have money, I'm gonna wield power. You've got to build relationships just like you've got to do in any other scenario, just like you don't get to magically be the CEO of a company without putting in like 20 years of work and having a resume. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you kind of touched on this because a Curtis, to kind of tail into something that we were talking to a little bit earlier, um, they say that LP people can't get elected, but I think that's changing. And yeah, it's changing. People, right, and I think people have a lot more of an appetite for it. So, Angela, you would be specifically qualified to speak to this. I know that, that kind of sounds like I'm setting you up, but um, when it comes to the Libertarian Party strategy, they will criticize post-libertarians and paleo guys alike will say that we're not willing to use power because libertarians are just averse to any kind of force because the libertarian party says you're not allowed to use force okay. well let's play it, it's what defines force so are you willing yeah. to use political power to help advance freedom in your community because that would yeah. be a form of force in some way this is this is just like this descends into sort of like semantics nonsense right. so here's here's a really good one get elected wield as much authority, power, and influence as you can to get rid of as many entitlements and taxes at the local level as possible. So what does that mean? Get rid of all of the stupid experimental UBI programs at the local level, like LA and some nearby communities are like, oh, we'll give a thousand dollars a month to trans people in poverty. Well, I wish the very best for them, but we're not going to do that with tax dollars. Get rid of that. Um, we have the most oppressive parking ticket stuff. Like it's LA and San Francisco, it's insane. Get rid of that. We shouldn't have $80 parking tickets for, for some of these minor violations. There are all kinds of ways that you can wield uh, political power in a way that's healthy and positive. It furthers freedom and doesn't screw anyone over. So I, I just don't think the two are incompatible. And I also think that you can be Machiavellian to a certain degree and that it's not immoral. You just have to decide, like, are you advancing a, an agenda of freedom? Are you being truthful? You know, like all that sort of stuff. I think most of us can figure it out, too. OK, yeah. And I think once again, I think they straw man the LP position a lot because they think that um, basically LP people just want to LARP. They just want to go on Twitter and yep. spew stuff off but um at least in my personal experience i don't think that's the way that at least a lot of people here in pennsylvania are planning to do things right. they want to work to help nullify things they want to help free people in whatever way they can do within their locale and it's not like you just were in Afghanistan, yeah. like i was saying earlier yeah. it's a totally valid criticism of our past and our recent past too so like one thing that i'm really committed to doing is taking all these insults on the chin because they're not without merit, uh, you know, 
But what I'm emphasizing, and this is a big distinction between us and post-libertarians, is that I understand we're in a time of crisis, but we must still plan for the long term, because when you don't do that, you don't have a solid foundation, and it's just kind of impossible to make gains. And you've got to do it. Like You've got to just be visionary and think towards the future. And that's the only way to establish anything that's going to be meaningful and lasting. Cool. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, Pat and Angela, once again, anything else you guys feel like wasn't hit on? I don't think so. Um, I didn't get hit on a single time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I'm just thinking, I, I hope that you know, we didn't stram, straw man any of their positions. Uh, I, I'm, I, I think it's important to have these conversations. And, and again, I, I value their opinion and um, goodwill. That's yep. It. Yeah. Yep. I have mad respect for anyone who's trying to advance liberty. Um, and if people are so bold as to try to clean up the Republican Party, I wish them the best of luck and I hope they succeed. That's yeah. just not, that's just not my, um, my jam. That's not what I'm doing. Okay. So, um, I want to get you guys' opinion on the most bullish case for the Republican Party. And once again, I asked the previous guests what their most bullish case for the Libertarian Party is. So um, let's say the LP route fails and the GOP, you know, succeeds in what their vision is. Um, what do you think about that? And what would it take for you to consider that your approach has failed? Um, I would need to see the warfare state rolled back, like significantly, not just we didn't start new wars. And I would need to see economic policy turned around dramatically. Like no more Republicans voting for massive uh, bailouts because we're in a lockdown. It, It would need to be the clear majority doing the opposite. Okay. Um, now, Pat, I know you're not quite as much invested in the LP as Angela is, but um, for you to kind of go all in on the GOP, what would it take for you? Um, I, I don't think that's ever a possibility because I'm a milquetoast fence sitter when it comes to this issue. I mean, I, like I said, my conviction is, hey, man, do, do what you think is best for liberty. Sure. I'm going to do what I think is best for liberty, and I wish you well, and I'm going to cheerlead for everyone who's doing that. So. But, but I realistically, I'm very skeptical. I think that the best case scenario is that maybe we have six congressmen instead of three congressmen who are really, really good liberty right. congressmen. I think that maybe you could push one of the pop or a few of the populist right uh, Congress people to be a little less hawkish on China. And maybe you get, you build some good um, grassroots, you know, coalitions or, or have some good local candidates come about. And I think that's the best case scenario through going through the GOP. Okay. Here's, here's a litmus test I'd like to see passed. Ron DeSantis and everyone else shitting on Dan Crenshaw. Yeah. (laughs) I want to see that happen. Yeah. I think that's a pretty low bar and I think a lot of them would do, but you know, it's kind of funny. Um, I'm not sure if I ever really tweeted out or talked about it publicly, but it's really, really funny that everybody, including a lot of actually like just milquetoast Republicans, will shit on Dan Crenshaw for gun control and all this other stuff. But Trump was the one that was way worse on that issue. 
than yep. Dan Crenshaw was, but they'll never call out Trump for it, but they'll call it Dan Crenshaw for it. Let's see him, let's see him call it out. Let's get let's get Trey Gowdy turned into a liberty guy. <laughs> so do do that. Let's see those changes. And then like you know, I feel like like you know, George W. Bush. Fool me won't get fooled again. That's kind of <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at with the GOP. Sure. And, um, and to, 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 to take a few parting shots at Ron DeSantis. <laughs> <laughs> If they could succeed and maybe not, maybe have him not invite the IDF into Florida, maybe not saying that Florida is the most pro-Israel state in the nation, maybe not advocating for regime change in Cuba or, or Venezuela, maybe not pinning medals on the chest of Bay of Pigs veterans, maybe that would be a Ooh. success. Highly reasonable. I like it. Very reasonable requests. Very maybe, low bar. Maybe not doing events where you promote the vaccines to seniors at <laughs> a huge rate or tweeting in success of vaccinating a record number of Floridians. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. Yep. Yep. I'm getting triggered all over again. <laughs> so, um, so uh, Angela, if um, the GOP kind of did pass those litmus tests and did legitimately go anti-war like trump said would that perhaps convince you to work with the gop or would you still be married to the libertarian well i, I don't want to say married to paint you in any kind of way but would you still be tied to the libertarian party more so than you are currently i'll probably still be tied to the libertarian party more so than i am currently um but i will say nicer things about the GOP. sorry so yep your dog agrees yeah, yeah, he, uh, I always joke, he's the most frequent guest on the show. Uh, when people make points, he normally somehow gets up to run around and bark. Um, well, um, just one more time I want to ask, is there anything else you guys feel like you missed? Pat's not missing, but uh, hopefully we can still see it in here. Um, no, I, I feel good. I think that we had a really good conversation about this. I think it was really well-rounded. Um, I think I was... I was still pretty nice to the GOP and the paleo strategy in a few ways because it's not about tearing people down. Like we just need to make sharp critiques. Uh, you know, iron sharpens iron, and what we really want to do is is advance liberty, and that's what I'm all about. Sure. Yeah. Pat, same deal. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. And, <laughs> anyways, yeah. <laughs> that's all I got, man. You have to hold some of your DeSantis critiques for the next time. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Well. Uh... Hopefully uh, next time we get the uh, third guest on and, um, you know, maybe dive a little bit deeper. Yes. You know, a couple of different things. Cause I would definitely like that. And, uh, you know, you guys are two really good friends of mine in this movement. I'm really glad that I get to, uh, you know, share this podcast with you guys and uh, hopefully everybody gets as much value as I did out of it. Um, Angela, I'm really glad that you kind of got to lay out some of your critiques of the paleo movement uh, specifically on this podcast, because now I can say that this is the one for everybody to refer to. Um, uh, you guys want to do plugs and we'll uh, call it a day. Yeah, I'll start out. Um, you can find my work at the Libertarian Institute, libertarianinstitute.org. Uh, we're kind of wrapping up our fundraiser here. We're really close to our goal, but we still have maybe $15,000 left to go. So uh, libertarianinstitute.org forward slash donate. You can find my work at uh, libertyweekly.net. Cool, cool. Angela? Yep, if you want to see all the cool stuff I'm doing and read about the strategy and a lot of the a lot of new leadership and communication stuff that I've been coming out with and grassroots organizing. You can find that at 
patreon.com forward slash Angela McArdle. I put it on Substack and on Locals too. And um, I look forward to having a bunch of exciting updates for people after Memorial Day weekend. And I will be most likely assuming the national chair position for the Libertarian Party um, during that time. Right. Well, uh, I think that's something that everybody, including the uh, post-libertarians, can get behind because yeah. uh, you're definitely a firebrand, and I think you're the uh, change the LP needs to see. And uh, Pat, I think you're absolutely great at the work that you do, and I really, really admire the fact that you're able to call out the populist right, unlike anybody else, and you're willing to you know say the unpopular things when it matters. So, uh, uh, any closing thoughts, or you guys cool? Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Of course. All right. Well, um, I guess until next time, everybody, uh, rock and roll and take care. <laughs>